why that's why one thing whenever I talk to uh, potential clients and whenever I talk to authors, I always joke because I think one of the things that I might have mentioned when we were talking and we can talk more about it later is the fact that when people are querying, they often will query you with things that you don't represent. And it's either that they haven't done their research or they think they're going to be the one to change your mind. And I try to explain to them, I'm like, you know, you don't want to change my mind. Like the reason that I don't represent these things is that I don't know those markets. And so I usually have potential clients or even existing clients ask me, you know, well, what if I decide to write something a little bit different? And I'm like, you know, for my clients, I'm willing to go out and do the research and, you know, try and make inroads with the appropriate editors for whatever you want to write, unless you want to start writing erotica, because that one is so far out of the realm of anything that I would even begin to know in terms of market or who is buying it or what sells. That's probably, that's my, my benchmark for clients. I'm like, that's probably the one thing that I would steer clear of in terms of, you know, like if you want to do nonfiction and I don't really do that, that kind of nonfiction, I'll do the research and I'll find who I can send it to. But yeah, erotica is always my, if you decide you want to do erotica, I might not, you know, maybe we'll, Find somebody else to represent that for you, or you can self-publish it, or, you know. I tell you what, that's such a good point. Why don't we make that the start of the show? Is that all right? Sure. Hi, esteemed audience. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm your host, Rob Kent. You know who I am. Welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja by Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It's free. Download your free copy of the Book of David. That's that. Uh, my guest is none other than Becky Lejeune. And I'm saying that right. Yeah, Becky Lejeune? Yep. I felt really confident about the Becky part. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I am Cajun. It's a Cajun name. Um, it actually translates into French into the young. But um, where I'm from, it's actually pronounced Lejeune. And I gave up that fight around like fifth grade because <laughs> there's no R in it. So constantly like correcting people's pronunciation of it. I actually felt bad because um, there's a military base obviously named after the same name and um, someone had done a piece a while back on just how to pronounce it and the fact that it's not actually pronounced Lejeune it's pronounced Lejeune and that we you know should pay homage to the person that it's named after by pronouncing the name correctly and I was like oh this is a really interesting piece but I'm part of the problem because it's my last name and I'm mispronouncing it on purpose. <laughs> where, uh, where are you from originally? I'm from Louisiana. I'm from a small town called Lake Charles. Not super small, but small enough. Um, it's about an hour from the uh, border of Texas. And um, my husband and I are both from there. People usually comment that we don't have an accent. So I like to say that the accent from Texas and the accent from actual Cajun country just kind of cancels out. So. <laughs> <laughs> so how'd you uh, end up in, are you near, are you in Denver or near Denver? Yeah, um, my my mother-in-law probably regrets having taken her family on a family vacation to Colorado one year. Um, when my husband and I met, we, we went to the same high school. We had some of the same friends. We went to the same college, but we didn't actually know each other until um, he started working at the bookstore that I was working at. And he told me from the minute that we started dating, when I graduate, I'm moving to Colorado. <laughs> so... I had already graduated and I was, um, I had done some interviews with some publishers in New York. Um, 
And then I just kind of decided, well, you know, I can do what I'm doing in Louisiana just as well in Colorado. So I'll go too. <laughs> nice. That's the, I, I was just thinking that that sounds perfect. If you've got somebody that you kind of went to high school with, so you have shared history there, but they didn't know all the dumb things you did as a teenager. <laughs> that's, more, that's more my benefit than his. I didn't do anything dumb as a teenager. He did. <laughs> Well, I was I was honest, I was projecting uh, my, my own dumb uh, teenage behavior. <laughs> <laughs> so um, talking about what you represent, I know that when we uh, this this is a little unusual esteemed audience because uh, we had a wonderful conversation this at this year's StokerCon. Um, it was you and I and, and two other wonderful writers and and we were able to just bend your ear for a good hour, I think. Uh, maybe maybe a little bit over. And I thought, man, this is a wonderful podcast. I wish we had recorded it. So we got to get back together. We got to we got to make it official. Um, but you had uh, said that you are not interested in middle grade so much as young adult. Is that still true, or is middle grade one of those that maybe we could write an amazing uh, middle grade novel that would turn your change your mind? Yeah. So I'm not opposed to covering middle grade. Um, I I have a two year old, so. Um, before having a two-year-old, I didn't represent picture books. I don't actually put it out there that I do represent picture books, but um, I have a picture book on my list. Um, so, you know, when it comes to agents, you really want somebody who knows that market. I just don't know the middle grade market as much as I know the YA market. A lot of the editors who are acquiring middle grade are the same editors who are acquiring young adult. Um, in terms of sort of style and tone and um, content. I would say that I'm more comfortable with upper middle grade, um, but no, I'm not opposed to covering middle grade. It's just one of those things that I have more experience with YA, so I'm more comfortable in that space. Um, but yeah, I, you know, you mentioned that we met at StokerCon and horror is something that I'm really passionate about. So probably if a middle grade was really going to catch my attention, it was it would probably be a horror novel. Um, and that I am very comfortable with because obviously I'm a, a horror fan and I've been reading horror for an embarrassingly long time now. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not, um, I don't have a lot on my list, but it's not something that I'm not interested in, if that makes sense. It does. Uh <laughs> What, uh, what what's, what's the first uh, really scary story that turned your head and said, oh, I'm into this for life? Uh, so my parents were really trying to get me to read. I think I was in about second grade and um, that one of them brought home a ghost story. I, I, I looked it up a few times, um, So, but just vague recollection. The title is something like Jeremy and the second grade ghost or something like that. Um, but that, that was it. So about, about second grade, I was totally hooked on horror because of that book. <laughs> um, and that experience kind of is one of the things that, uh, makes me certain that there is a book out there for everyone. Not everybody might consider themselves a reader, but I think it's just a matter of them finding the right book. So that was the book for me. And from there I went straight into, um, R.L. Stein, Christopher Pike, all of the um, point horror, anything I could find in the in the YA horror section at that or the YA 
section at that point. Um, I like to kind of say that when I was um, that age, you were either R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike uh, fan or you were a Learning McDaniel fan because there really just wasn't that much to choose from. Um, so it didn't take me long to, to jump into adult horror. And then I did eventually start branching out beyond horror. But that was my that was my inroad to reading. I guess there was James Howell. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep, yep. And I read those too, so yeah. So what, uh, and this is an impossible question, I'm going to ask it anyway. What is not your most favorite, because I'm assuming your most favorite of all subjects are things written by your clients, uh, <laughs> but what is a very favorite uh, horror uh, book and horror movie? Oh, God. Um that's one of those things that kind of changes according to my mood. Um, cause, and I've thought about this a lot because that favorite book, favorite movie, that question comes up all the time. And um, I think a couple of my um, hardcore, like this will always be a favorite. I will always stop the TV when I come to this movie, no matter how many times I've seen it, um, are things like The Burbs, um, Gremlins, and then the Goonies, which is not horror, but still like my all-time favorite movie. Um, in terms of books, oh, um, I love The Shining. Um, and I, I actually I would say Jurassic Park is probably the one movie, the one book that I have reread the most times. Um, strangely enough, so. Well, not strange. I've uh, read that one three or four times. Yeah, it's uh, by the ending. I'm always like, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. What are you doing going back to destroy the raptor nest? You're free, get out of there. <laughs> well, I read that when um, I want to say that I was about 11 when the movie came out, and we had gone to um, we'd gone to New Orleans with my grandmother, and we went to the zoo, and the zoo actually had a dinosaur exhibit with, of course, in the um, gift shop a huge display of copies of Jurassic Park and so my grandmother bought me Jurassic Park and I dragged that paperback all around New Orleans for the rest of the trip and I brought it to summer camp with me and yeah I reread that thing I don't even know how many times I finally replaced the paperback with a hardcover so and were you all similarly enamored of the lost world or is it mostly just Jurassic Park I love Jurassic Park. I was not a big fan of, of The Lost World. I I like a lot of Michael Crichton's work. Um, and it's really funny, too, because I, I've been thinking a little bit more about his work lately because um, he um, his use of actual science is one of the things that I find really fascinating. Um, and it's it kind of segues into a conversation that I have with authors when they're querying and things. Um, sometimes I'll have somebody pitch me a project and I'll ask them afterwards, you know, I'll, I'll find whatever the topic of the project is really fascinating. And then I'll ask the author, you know, what do you do when you're not writing? And nothing that they've given me so far indicates anything along those lines. And they'll come out with, you know, like, oh yeah, they pitched me a science, fi sci science fiction project and they work in, you know, software development or something. And I'm like, oh wow, like you wrote this really cool book about robots taking over the world and you work in AI like that's that's or software development like that's awesome and 
that's part of your platform and I need to know that. And that just makes this even more cool. Um, so the fact that Michael Crichton was doing that for a living while also writing fiction that was informed by, you know, what he did professionally is really cool and by no means necessary of any author, but it just kind of, um, I'm one of those people who likes it when an author can convince me that they are an authority on a subject. And so knowing that he does that for a living just adds even more to that authority, if that makes sense. Um, but one of the reasons that I've been thinking about him a lot lately is that I um, have been really interested lately in um, books that are very similar to Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, where there's like this this weird maybe paranormal thing going on, but there's some science to back it up that maybe there's a logical explanation to. And I really like that um, blending of genres, the the sort of blending of real world science and you know speculative fiction. Um, and I'm kind of on the lookout for that kind of thing as a reader and as an agent right now. So that's why long, long winded story about why Michael Crichton has been particularly on my brain lately. This podcast is designed for uh, tensions and own stories, whatever, whatever you got. Uh, I was going to say that with uh, with expert writers, um, sometimes what I find is like, oh my gosh, they they're, they're such an expert on the subject, they can absolutely convince me of their uh, their authority on this. I wish they had more fiction people in their critique group working with them. Let's find a way to to break this up and make it less textbook and less exciting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice balance. And that's, you know, that's always as an agent, whenever people are querying me, I'll come across a query where um, I have certain certain like buzzwords, which is kind of where I thought you were going with the last question, like topics that always catch my attention as an agent, um, like haunted house stories. I'm always <laughs> I love haunted house stories. Um, and so, for example, if I get a query, a really great query about a haunted house story, and then like I find out that the author is, uh, I don't know, maybe like a writer on one of the like ghost hunter shows or something, you know, somebody who really has the chops to be writing what they're writing, and then I get into the actual writing and it's not great. So like you said, it's too technical or it's too, um, one that I see a lot are, are people who have a background in screenplays a lot of the times they transition to narrative prose from screenplays, it doesn't quite work. They're still doing a, too much of the camera direction, you know, the kind of thing that, that you need in a screenplay, but the, the kind of thing that you want the actual flow of the narrative to show you rather than, you know, a step-by-step -step play of what the character's doing. Um, so yeah, I tend to, I'm a little bit better about it now that I've been doing this for a while, but I, I still get very excited. <laughs> in the query and then I have to like temper it and say well wait let's see if the writing actually comes through let's see if the writing is as good as I want it to be I've talked to at least two authors on this show so far who, while I was talking to them revealed that they were in a house that was haunted and were able to take the camera to the haunted place so for our esteemed audience who wants to go and find out uh Shannon uh, McGuire 
who either just uh, who either just aired before this episode or just after. I can never remember the exact order when when these things come out. Uh, and then Francesca Zappia. Both of those watch them on YouTube uh, as as well as listening to them, so you can see the haunted areas of of their homes. And I figure if I've had just two authors on this show, there must be all kinds of authors out there living in haunted houses that need to be uh, submitting to you. <laughs> yes. Yes. I do not, uh, as far as I know, I do not live in a haunted house, but at the time that we're recording this, um, I'm actually going out of town tomorrow to stay overnight at the Stanley Hotel, so I'm pretty excited about that. We do not have one of the haunted rooms. Um, we are also not staying in room 217 because they charge extra for that. Um, but for anybody who doesn't know, the Stanley Hotel is the hotel that The Shining is based on, so I'm pretty excited. I've lived in Colorado since 2005, and so far I've only been to the gift shop. <laughs> what, uh, just out of curiosity, what is the surcharge to stay in 217? You know, I didn't even look. I didn't even look. Um, but when you book your room, you can choose one of the spirited rooms. Um, the Stanley books up pretty fast, so I didn't even bother looking at the spirited rooms because I figure those are the ones you have to be like planning your stay months ahead. <laughs> Well, Steve, the audience knows I'm going to ask sooner or later because I ask everybody that comes on the show. Uh, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I have not. <laughs> My husband is obsessed with flying saucers. Like, he's so obsessed with, like, all of the, like, the government's going to reveal all of their history of, you know, UFOs and stuff. Like, he tells me this on a regular basis. Like, anytime anything new comes out about it. I, um... I am open but skeptical. We'll put it that way. Um, but I have never, never experienced anything like that. <laughs> this has been a wonderful time for me because my my wife is uh, she's she's not really skeptical so much as she's just tired of hearing me talk about them. I've been obsessed <laughs> for years, and I and this is this is wonderful because people have kind of given me the sideways look just for years. Like, really, you seem like such an intelligent fellow when we started talking, and then you brought up the flying saucers. But I already wrote the book of David, my alien book. It's out. It's done. It's not going to be messed up by actual disclosure. My fiction is flawless in that way. Uh, and now, after all these years of people looking sideways with the disclosure happening, like, yeah, vindication. <laughs> You don't have to apologize. It, it's enough for me to have been right. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love, I love, um, I love the movies. I love the books. I just, I've never experienced it myself. So. so, what are some of your favorite haunted house stories for those listening who've written a, a young adult haunted house story that they want to send to you immediately? Hmm. And of course, I'm drawing a complete blank. Um, the one that immediately pops to mind uh, was actually, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was by Alexandra Sokoloff. And it was her first book. Um, and it's about uh, a group of kids, if I remember correctly, kids, they're, they're in college, um, who stay behind during one of the holiday breaks and encounter a ghost on campus. Um, that one stood out to me because, and it's been so long since I read it, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it struck me as being sort of um, unique in the way that she approached the haunted house story. Um, 
The Shining, which I already mentioned. I love, love The Shining. Um, book and movie or mostly book? Both. And I, I feel bad saying that because I know how Stephen King feels about the movie. Um, but I, I, I like the movie for what it is. I completely understand his arguments with it, but um, I, I do really like the movie. Um, I also love the book, so um, I like both. I can I can view them as two separate things. Um, I also really really love Doctor Sleep, both the movie and the book as well. I think the movie was one of the most fantastic movies that has come out in a while, and I think um, I'm very sad that not enough people went to see it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that I, I'm with you that I feel that the 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 Shining, the movie, and the book are equally great. Whereas Dr. Sleep, I feel like the movie improved just a little bit on the book by being able to bring the Overlook back in. They, yes, and I mean, everything about that movie is so cool. My husband works in um, film editing, so I I can't fully give him credit for some of the things that I noticed in films just because he works in that. I think that I was already on my way to recognizing some of these things in films, but uh, even, I mean, like the sound design in Dr. Sleep is so amazing. There are things that they did uh, intentionally. I think one of the notes that they had was at one point when a car is like driving over a bridge, the sound effect that they use is actually the sound effect of the little tricycle in the hotel on the sh in The Shining. Um, so everything that they did in that movie was so deliberate and worked so well. Um, yeah, it's it is it's a really cool movie, um, and I was actually lucky enough. <laughs> the closest I've come to Stephen King is I'm a huge Stephen King fan girl. Um, he came to Boulder when he was touring for Doctor Sleep. It's the as far as I know one of the only times that he's come to Colorado touring for a book, um, and part of it was because of course The Shining takes place in Colorado, um, but. We got to go see him. Um, I bought a ticket from the, the bookstore that was hosting it. The ticket came with a book. A handful of people also got signed copies. I was not lucky enough to get a signed copy. Um, but I did get to go see Stephen King talk about Dr. Sleep. And that was that was really cool. I ever got a chance to, to talk with him. And I'm, I'm Mr. King, I know you listen every week. You're, you're welcome on the show anytime. Um, but um, one question I would definitely have for him is why tour? Everybody knows who you are. There's no chance they're not going to buy your book. You you must just love going to see the fans. But at the same time, like how many times can you see people just faint, like they're like they're meeting a, a beetle? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would imagine it has to have something to do with just enjoying, you know, the the going out and doing it. And I I don't know how much of it he does at this point. But Joe Hill has come to town a few times too, but I haven't managed to see him. <laughs> I just listened to him and Josh Mallerman doing an event together, and both of them had stories about reading to their spouse while the spouse worked on puzzles. I was like, oh, man, maybe that's why I'm not Joe Hill or Josh Mallerman. I never read to my wife while she works on puzzles. I need to do that. <laughs> that, that, that would actually be really cool. I like to listen to audiobooks when I'm doing puzzles, so that would be, like, even more exciting than that. Although... I don't know. As the spouse, are you allowed to like be as excited about your your spouse's work as you are about a published book? I feel like there's a little bit of a like gray area there. Just a few times that my husband asks for like my input on his work, he really doesn't want my input. He just wants me to tell him it's fantastic. <laughs> I think 
they were reading other people's books, although I don't know. Okay. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit of both. I thought you meant they were reading their own work to their I, I don't think I could sell my wife on that one. I could probably <laughs> get her to listen to me read somebody else's book. <laughs> and I don't I don't know if that would be an entirely pleasant experience because I'd be like, hey, that, that was pretty funny. Why aren't you laughing? That, that was a good joke. <laughs> you don't seem as scared as I would imagine you to be at this moment. Uh, so anyway, um, you started off working your first job in publishing as Barnes & Noble, right? Actually, I was at a Walden Books. Oh. Yeah, I was at a I was at a Walden Books um, for three years. Um, proud to say that our Walden Books was actually doing very well, um, and it was before they closed down all of the borders. Um, but unfortunately, they tried to negotiate some aspects of our lease with the mall that we were in, and the mall would not budge, and so. They decided to close our store. Um, so, yeah, actually, a handful of us from Walden's ended up at Barnes & Noble, um, which was in the parking lot of the same mall. <laughs> Convenient. Um, so, yeah, we I worked at Walden's for three years. I worked at Barnes & Noble for three years. Um, and funnily enough, without knowing it, whenever I moved to Colorado, I moved to one of the sort of hot spots of publishing um <laughs> uh so a friend of mine when i was working at barnes and noble was like well you should look at the denver publishing institute and I was like, what the heck is that um the denver publishing institute is a um intensive <laughs> month-long course crash course in publishing it, every aspect of publishing um it's a monday through friday uh throughout the month of july 9 a.m to 5 p.m class um they bring in editors they bring in marketing people they bring in I'm at this point who knows what because the industry has changed so much but they do try to bring in somebody who has some sort of experience in just about every facet of publishing that you can imagine um and i had not heard of it i also did not know that it was one of only a handful of programs like it um so i applied and i got in and that's how i met um sandra who i work with now but um Immediately out of the Publishing Institute, I got a job as a managing editor working on cookbooks. Um, it was for a small local press. It was a contract position, but I did that for two years. And then when my contract was up there, I got a job um, as an acquisitions editor with another small press. And I did that for five years and then got back in touch with Sandra and said, you know, I'm doing all these things that seem like all the things that I would do as an agent, but I'm working for a publisher and I would rather work for the authors. Um, and so I started working with her as an assistant and a reader and then started taking on my own clients. So, yeah. Why is working uh, as an agent more attractive as a, as a means to working with authors as working as an acquisitions editor? For me, um, and this is this is sort of a little bit of a difference between working for a big house as opposed to a small house. When you work for a small publisher, um, things are a little less compartmentalized than they are with a big house. And so you get a lot of experience doing things outside of sort of what you would assume is your box. <laughs> so as an acquisitions editor for that particular company, it was also my job to um, handle contract negotiations with directly with the authors, um, work with the authors through the entire process with the different departments that they were working with. So 
um, the managing editor, the designer, the marketing team, all of those things, I was really, you know, fostering this relationship with this author and holding their hand through the entire project. But when it came down to it, any decisions that had to be made, even if I completely sympathized with the author, I had decided with the publisher because that's who I was working for. And I, I just, you know, there was nothing wrong with what was going on with the publisher, but it just felt like, you know, I've spent all this time building this relationship with this person. And, you know, if they're not happy with their title, but the publisher says, no, this has to be this way because that's what we want. I've decided with the publisher as opposed to this person that I've spent this, this amount of time, you know, supporting through this process. And as an agent, I don't have to do that. As an agent, I am the author's, you know, number one fan. I'm like your person, I'm the person in your corner. I am the person who supports you along the way, but I'm also the person who can be the bad guy if something happens between you and the publisher. Um, one of the easier ways to put it is that I handle the business side of things because publishing is a business. And so it allows the author to, you know, continue focusing on their work and their art and have friendly relationships with <laughs> their editor and people like that. And then if there's some sort of issue, I'm the one who can step in instead of the author having to do it and straighten things out. Um, and that's just, that's where I would rather be, you know? Um, Publishers are out for them. Straightening out? Um, things like, well, so perfect example, we were talking about the fact that I, I'm Cajun. Um, there's an author who, another Cajun author, who once upon a time was talking about the fact that her um, copy editor kept editing out all of her like Cajunisms. And so that would be a situation where your agent would step in and say like, no, you can't keep, you know, correcting the <laughs> this it's supposed to be that way or um another thing that comes up a lot is is cover design um usually what happens with cover design is that the art department at a publisher will come up with a number of possible designs the publisher themselves get together and they decide which one they like um and they'll send that to the author and it's kind of like here's your cover um, and there are a lot of things that can happen in that regard. You know, as an author, you can say things like, well, this looks like a romance cover and my book is not a romance. I once heard um, Harlan Coben talking about the redesign of one of his Myron Bolotar covers that had a bullet on the cover. And he said to the publisher, he said, you realize nobody in this book gets shot. So, you know, it's, it's things like that. Um, there are certainly probably more egregious things that would come up, but I would say those are the, probably the most common things. Um, and, and two, one of the things to understand as an author when you're working with a publisher is that, you know, hopefully, especially if you have an agent, you're working with someone who loves your book, who thinks that your book is going to do well, and they're not going to do anything to fundamentally change the book hopefully. Um, but as an author, edits and things like that are always a conversation. So, you know, if you're going through your manuscript and you're going through editorial notes and you agree with half of them and you disagree with half of them, you don't have to say like, oh, I really don't agree with half of these notes, but the editor says it has to be that way. And so it does. That's, that's not actually how it works. Um, as the author, you can push back. You can say, well, 
I don't agree with this edit and here's why. And the same thing happens um, because I happen to be a very editorial agent. The same thing happens as an agent as well. You know, I might have suggestions that the author might say this doesn't really align with, you know, my vision for the project. Um, it's not my book. I'm I'm the agent, but I am trying to address potential you know pitfalls and, and issues that are, that are going to come out. And so hopefully. If I'm totally off base with an editorial note, or if an editor is totally off base with an editorial note, the author is comfortable enough to say, well, I don't agree with this and here's why. And then maybe it can become a conversation. So maybe, you know, maybe we don't have to fix it this way, but maybe it does still need to be addressed. And maybe having the conversation has sparked an idea on the author's part of, you know, the perfect way to fix it that works for everybody. Um, but I think that's something that a lot of authors sort of go into the process not really understanding, you know, that once you get an editor, once you get a book deal, you're not committed to um, every single note and dictation that they make. It's, you know, it's a conversation. I'm curious because I'm always hearing, uh, well, not always, but I've heard from some literary agents that one thing that they'll do to make sure it's a good fit up front to avoid some of this stuff is talk with the editor, get their vision for the book, have some clear idea. So presumably, if they don't say we want to change the title, we want to put a hideous bullet on your cover that makes no sense or something like that, would it not be good faith that, oh, those things aren't going to happen? You would hope, but... But I think publishing. I'm wrong. Why am I wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so publishing is a business and a lot of big houses, um, a lot of people don't seem to understand that with a lot of the big houses, these people are working on so many projects at once. Um, you know, for example, editors, an acquisitions editor. When I pitch a project to an editor, they're not sitting in their office reading queries all day. They're probably reading that query, you know, on their way home on the subway or you know they're doing that on their own time what they're doing in their actual office hours is working with projects that they've already signed and authors that they've already signed um so by the time it goes to you know a copy editor for example that's not the person who acquired and fought for your book in front of the editorial board that's a copy editor who works for the publisher so conversations you had with your acquisitions editor you know, as far as uh, Cajun slang and things like that may not get passed on to the copy editor themselves. And so they're going to try and fix all that. Now, at the same time, by the time your book goes off to the art director, you know, for cover design, they aren't necessarily reading the book themselves. They're getting notes and they're getting suggestions and they're building a cover based on that. Um, so, you know, the person who put the bullet on the cover doesn't necessarily know that nobody got shot in the book. They're just going off of like, okay, like this is the art direction. These are the other covers that they want me to use as an example. And this is the style and the tone that they're aiming for. And this is what I came up with. You know what I mean? Somebody doesn't say, Mr. Coven, what do you think would be the ideal cover for this? And then <laughs> that? You know, they might, um, they certainly might at this point, but I can tell you from working from, for a small press, um, there are certain things that um, you as the author don't want to have a hand in. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, so one of the things that's given me a nice perspective as, a, as an agent was um, the press that I worked for would frequently send me back to authors to ask them to take a stab at their um, uh, 
cover blurb, you know, the description of the book. And I can't tell you, nine times out of 10, it was completely unusable. Um, And that's not because the author was a bad author by any means. It's just because I know from that job and now from working as an agent that authors have a really hard time summing up their book into, you know, one paragraph. Um, And so that experience has given me, like I said, it's given me a nice perspective because now as an agent, um, so here's a little query tip (laughs) when you're querying agents, make sure that you're following the instructions. Um, Our agency has always asked for a query and your first five pages. Occasionally we'll get somebody who only sends their query um and that's you're kind of you're you've got you've got two opportunities with me you've got your query that will hopefully catch my attention and hopefully i love what it's about uh or what you say your book is about and then i can dive into the writing and actually see you know some of the story um which hopefully will hook me and ask me you know get me to the point where i want to ask to see more but um knowing that that many authors really struggle with writing that one paragraph description, which also translates into authors struggling with their query. Um, Like I said, it has given me a perspective. So if I read a bad query, I don't hold it against the author. I'm really looking to jump into the actual book itself and see what the writing looks like there. Um, Because I know, I know that it's hard and I know, I know that the, the query, I always tell authors too, I'm like, you know, don't stress so much over your query. Like you want it to be like your best foot forward. Um, but I know that it's hard and hopefully (laughs) the book itself will show me, you know, your talent as a writer. Um, so yeah, you get, you get like sort of a two prong, like this is your, this is your first, uh, first impression. The query is your first impression, but you know, if you stumble on the way out the gate, I'm not going to hold it against you. I actually want to see the writing. I know you guys are using the query manager at the Bond Literary Agency. So somebody has to be extra obstinate to mess that up because it's very clear about filling these following steps before you hit submit. It really is. um, But we only started using query manager in March of this year. So (laughs) prior to that, there was a lot of, you know, here's my query. And then I actually did for a little while spend some time if I saw what I thought was a promising query, you know, emailing the author back and saying, okay, great. So it'd be a sample so I can see, you know, some of your writing. Um, But yeah, I guess, again, long-winded story to say that, you know, I know that authors struggle with that. I, I think certainly people who work in art design, especially at the Bay Houses, um, know what they're doing. I, I mean, I even at the small publisher that I worked with, I I saw some cover designs that like I had a hand in suggesting like what images to use on the cover and that sort of thing. And I was always amazed with what they came up with. So yeah, there might be some authors out there who are perfectly adept at designing the most, you know, fabulous cover for their book, but I would say for the most part, <laughs> you want the people in the art, des- art design department doing that for you because that's what they do for a living. I have had the experience of telling my cover designer exactly the cover I thought I wanted and he delivered exactly that cover and it was terrible. Like, oh man, I should really ask you for <laughs> your input, sir. You, you're, you're the professional. I, I should defer to you. So with the uh, five pages on the on the query manager, uh, something struck me is, I mean, 
we're not killing trees. Everything is coming through electronically. Why not have somebody send you the full manuscript? So obviously you're not necessarily going to read past the five pages. Probably for a lot of them, you're not reading past page one. But if you like those five pages and I've got your interest, wouldn't it be wonderful if right there in that moment, while I have you captivated, you had more story to read to wherever you felt comfortable? Yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't have I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, you're right. It's it's actually it's sad how often and I I um, I'll back up before I before I'll, I'll qualify my statement before I make it. Um, I try to be very nice <laughs> um, because well, for a number of reasons, but mostly, you know, I do this for a living. I work with authors. I love authors. I love books. Um, I would love for every author who queries me to be fantastically talented. Um, but, you know, some people, they're just not there yet. You know, the writing is just not there yet. And um, and I feel terrible turning somebody down. I mean, it, it kind of feels like I'm telling you your child is ugly or something. You know, it's it's really it's not fun um and so yeah a lot of times i don't get through even the first page before i know either the manuscript is not ready or based on what the project is about it's not going to be a good fit for me you know i, I can usually tell in less than one I, I, and and i can usually tell in less than one page if i want to see more um, so I don't necessarily even read the whole five pages before I ask to see more. Um, I'll just, you know, start in on the manuscript and say, like, I love the voice on this. I've got to read more. Like, I just want to dive into the whole thing. And I'll shoot off an email to the author and ask to see the whole manuscript. Um, I think, though, um, it doesn't take long for my inbox, certainly, to become overwhelmed and for me to start feeling overwhelmed. And we do have a stipulation at our agency that if you do not receive a response, it's a pass. Um, I do try to, again, sort of qualify that with authors and tell them, you know, if you don't hear from me, by all means, you can query me again. But um, I would say that having someone take the steps to follow the instructions, um, you know, include their query, include their first five pages, that is part of that first impression that your query is giving. You know, it's it's before I even get to the query. I know that you have read, you know, what I, hopefully what I'm looking for. Hopefully this is in the genre that I'm looking for. Query Manager, again, makes that very easy because there's boxes that I get to check off saying specifically what I'm looking for. Um, but yeah, it shows me you followed your instructions. Then I start reading your query. Then I start reading your writing. And then I can reach out to you and ask to see more. And I think that last um, bit, the, you know, getting an email from me asking to see the whole manuscript, at least you know then <laughs> that I've read it, <laughs> that I've read part of it and I'm asking to see more. Whereas if you were to just send your whole manuscript and just sit there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and I try to be clear with people when I ask for full manuscripts too, it, you know, I'm not necessarily going to be able to get to it that same day. That's always my intent. It's a little bit like going to the bookstore, picking up, you know, a book that you're interested in reading, reading the cover, bringing it home, like you want to read it that day. Um, but I have client projects that always have to take precedence over 
querying authors. Um, I just, just this past weekend had to follow up with an author who um, I had read some things and then I asked to see more and I had to follow up with that person because I said, you know, I know, I know that they're probably sitting on pins and needles waiting to hear back from me because what they sent me was a work in progress. And I had to email them back and say, look, um, I don't want to leave you hanging. I don't want you stressing out, but I have client projects that all landed in my lap at the same time. And so I had to put yours on pause. Um, and they were totally understanding about it, but you know, <clears throat> that happens. I'll, I'll request a manuscript, it'll come in and then I'll get a client project or I'll get a contract that needs reviewing or, you know, something client based that I have to deal with first before I can go back to the queries. Which of course authors will appreciate if they go on to become your client that you're you're prioritizing them. Exactly, exactly. I hope every literary agent in the world just heard what you said and that if you're gonna have things come up and you're not gonna be able to get to that full you requested for a little while, email the author. What a what a wonderful thing that you've done. <laughs> I don't I actually do not usually um, have the opportunity to do that. <laughs> this was I won't say it was a special case, but it was a little bit of a special case because uh, it was somebody that I had met and um, and the project that I requested was not finished. And so I, I knew that the author was going to be sort of extra nervous about that because it was not a finished project. <laughs> and so I really didn't want them sitting there wringing their hands like, oh God, she hated it. I knew it wasn't ready and she asked to see it and she hated it. So. I really just wanted to reassure that person because I knew that they would be extra um, extra concerned about their in-progress baby being out in the world. <laughs> With the, um, oh, I lost my question. I had a, I had a brilliant follow-up and it's gone forever. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's uh, talk about how to turn your head. Um, a query letter, what, uh, I mean, are you just looking for standard first paragraph, here's how I know about you, and then go straight to the pitch, or what What? What makes a good query letter, and is there anything in a query letter that makes you go, I'm going to read the writing sample, this is, we're done. Yes, um, so there are so many guidelines out there for how to write a query letter. Um, at this point, yeah, I think if you, um, if you deviate from that, I kind of have to ask why. Uh, so I'll start with some of the some of the weird ones that I've seen that definitely turn me off. Um, and most of the time, those are written from the perspective of the character. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't want you to be cute in your <laughs> Aquarian letter. Um, I don't want you to do something that you think is going to like shock me right off the bat. Um, it's it is odd and confusing when I do get a query letter that, like I said, is written from the perspective of the character. Um, I've also had query letters that are super uh, overly boastful, you know, you'll regret turning down my book because it's going to win, you know, every award and, and that sort of thing. Um, I've also had authors talk down about the genre that they're writing. Um, you know, if I get a horror query and the first thing in your query letter says, um, horror usually sucks, but mine doesn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, 
Especially when it's written by your previous client. Keep reading. Oh, oh, and then the other, the other one that, you know, I, I know, I know querying is tough. I mean, this is a tough industry. Everything takes forever. Um, so I'm sympathetic, but I really don't like getting queries that are like, well, I know you're going to turn this down anyway, but I decided to email you just to see, <laughs> you know, like that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so I love to see a query um, that maybe maybe the first sentence is a call out um and then jumps into the description of the book um a call out such as i heard you on the middle grade ninja podcast that's why and i knew you would be perfect for me something like that yeah exactly um and then you know i really just want one or two paragraphs about the book itself and then maybe a short paragraph about yourself and then i want to jump into the book um a lot of authors will I mean, I've, I've seen query letters that tell me nothing about the book. <laughs> you know, I've seen um, this was this was more common when we were not using Query Manager because you can't really do it. But um, prior to Query Manager, I would get people who would email me see attached query. Um, and if you don't know, as a querying author, nobody wants attachments unless we ask for them. So <laughs> that's why a lot of the guidelines are to embed your query letter in your first five pages in the body of an email. Um, so yeah, you know, it's again, it's one of those things that shows uh, that you followed the instructions, shows that you're treating this um, as a profession, which it is. Um, and shows me that that you take this seriously. Um, so yeah, short and sweet. Um, and then I, I, you know, some agents ask for um, synopses and I usually have people ask me, do you want to see a synopsis? I'm like, nope, I do not want to see a synopsis. I want to run right into the writing. I want to go from your query into the book itself. Uh, the synopsis is just going to hold me up. <laughs> and spoil. Yeah, I mean, some people ask for it, and that's perfectly fine, but me personally, I don't. Um, because for me, the really telling thing is the writing itself. Um, but yeah, that query letter is part of that first impression. So um, it doesn't have to be, you know, exactly formatted, like one sentence call out, one paragraph, you know, synopsis, or I shouldn't call it a synopsis, but one paragraph nutshell description. Um, and then one paragraph bio, you know, you can deviate from that. I want the important stuff. Um, but yeah, it's the work itself that's that's really going to sell me on a book. So. Gotcha. Uh, one more questions about queries and then we'll move on. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I know that people are, are, are hearing you and like, oh my gosh, you like Stephen King? I like Stephen King. We're practically the same mind. I better send you a <laughs> query. Um, so I want to make sure I, I give them every uh, opportunity to succeed in doing so. What kind of that paragraph that's just about the author, what do you want to know? What would impress you? Um, so there are things that would impress me, but rather than talk about that, I kind of want to set people's minds at ease um, because really that bio is an opportunity for me to just get to know a little bit about you. Um, I know authors fret, you know, they'll say, well, I haven't published anything. I haven't won any awards. I haven't, you know, 
gotten accepted into any kind of special writing program. All of those things are going to catch my attention. But, um, you know, like I said before, I really want to see the writing itself. And so many times I have read those, you know, accolades about somebody's writing career. And then I've gotten into the writing itself and it's, it's, it's not good. Um, <laughs> so you don't need all of that stuff. I'm not looking for you to impress me in your bio, but what I am looking for is, you know, like I said earlier, you wrote this book about robots taking over the world and you work with AI for a living. Like that's, that's fabulous. That's awesome. Um, you don't have to have that. If you're writing a book about robots taking over the world and you work in a bank, that's totally fine too. Um, but you know, I like to know, you know, what did you get a degree in? If you got one, what do you do when you're not writing? Um, I don't really want like, you know, likes long walks on the beach and you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> but you know, uh, maybe you're pitching me a, a middle grade book and you have, you know, a 12 year old son that, that influenced this book and you read it to them at, you know, bedtime and that's how your story evolved. Like, that's cool. I like to know those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I'm not necessarily looking to be impressed. Certainly those things will catch my attention, but again, ultimately it's going to be the writing itself. I really just want to know a little bit about you because the other thing that happens when I do dive into something that is really great is that I immediately want to know more about the person who wrote it. And that's as an agent and as a reader. Um, so, you know, if you have a social media presence, I'm going to go look you up there and see what you're doing. If you have a website, I'm going to go check out your website. If you have a podcast, I'm going to go check out your podcast, you know. Um, and I like some of that, at least, <laughs> to be included in your query so that I don't just have to, like, you know, blindly do a Google search and hope that I'm finding the right person. <laughs> That has happened too. I've gotten queries that have absolutely nothing about the author and then I go to Google and I'm like 24 people with the same name. I have no idea who this person is or what they do. Um, more often that's a bit of an issue if I have somebody who's writing say a legal thriller and then I go look them up and I can't actually tell if they have any kind of experience um, in a legal capacity that would inform their writing or you know and I kind of want to know those things. You don't have to have it. That's what I really want to stress because I don't want anybody to say like, oh God, I was going to write, you know, her about my fantastic legal thriller and I'm not a lawyer and she's just going to turn it down. That's not the case at all. Um, just examples of things that I like to find out in the bio. I'm not a lawyer, but I have spent a lot of time in the legal system, if you know what I mean. So I'm really useful like that. <laughs> well, a perfect example, um, you know, again, because I am Cajun and because I'm from Louisiana, um, and I actually did major in criminal justice. Uh, the legal system in Louisiana is a little bit different. Um, and Louisiana has parishes instead of counties. So if you were to query me with a book set in, I don't know, uh, Jefferson County, Louisiana, <laughs> then I'm going to know that you didn't really do your research. Uh, so. Okay, well, let's back up a moment. You majored in criminal justice. How do you go from that to working in a bookstore to eventually publishing? Well, so I started working in a bookstore my sophomore year in college. It was my, not my first job, but my first job while I was in college. Um, so I worked in the bookstore 
through most of my college career. Uh, I started out in accounting <laughs> because I wanted, I thought that I wanted to own my own business. Um, so I very quickly changed from accounting <laughs> to criminal justice. And I wanted to, I, I majored in criminal justice with a double minor in English and anthropology. And I really wanted to um, pursue a graduate degree in anthropology and work in forensics. Um, at the time that I was in college, <laughs> I'm really aging myself here, um, CSI had just started and forensic anthropology as a whole was still sort of a new industry. A lot of the people who were teaching it at the time were people who basically created the study. Um, and so um, there just weren't that many programs for me to apply to. And I, I didn't want to go anywhere cold before I moved to Colorado. Um, and I kind of wanted the option of, of hopefully making things a little easier on myself by attending a program that had both a master's and a PhD option. Um, so LSU had the program with Mary Mannheim, but it was a master's program. And if I remember correctly, at least at the time, it was not the type of degree that you could get and then apply to a PhD program. It was um, something about the certification or the, the degree program for that master's program ended at a master's. Um, so yeah, I kind of like dipped my toe into the world of graduate school and very quickly decided that it was not for me. And in the meantime, moved to Colorado, went to the Denver Publishing Institute, which is actually a graduate level program. Um, <laughs> so I have had some graduate school experience since then, but um, yeah, it just, it was sort of, it was something that was always going on in the background. It wasn't necessarily the career track that I was planning on when I was in college, but um, let's say that's probably becoming even more and more um, the norm these days. I loved, uh, I loved my college. I loved the degree program that I was in. I loved the department. I was part of the Criminal Justice Society. I got to do all kinds of cool stuff, um, but yeah, it just wasn't, what I ended up doing for a living. Well, no, it seems like it, it absolutely worked out for you. <laughs> so, every, everything's going uh, going according to the cosmic plan or whatever. So, um, well, back to uh, hard numbers. Um, how many queries would you say you're receiving on average in maybe a week? And then how many new clients are you taking on per year? Um. I don't even know how many I receive uh, in a week. <laughs> Last check, my inbox on Query Manager was at 600. Um, and we've been using it since March and I was pretty on top of answering everything right away in March and I was gonna stay that way. And, and then they just started coming in too fast. Um, in terms of new clients, so far this year, I think this year I've only taken on one so far. I've I made some offers this year, um, but I think just one client this year. Last year I took on three or 
four. I can't remember now. <laughs> who who else can not remember 2020? I'm sure that last well. year that maybe would have distracted you. I <laughs> <laughs> um, I was very excited. So uh, last January we went to San Diego, and then I got back and I turned right around and went to New York, um, and it was super excited because I got to go to New York and attend the tour Nightfire launch party and meet the editors and all that stuff. And it was the same weekend as SFF Pit, which is one of my favorite um, Twitter pitch events. And so I was sitting in my hotel reading um, tweets <laughs> and then um, queries from SFF Pit. And I was like, you know, this is going to be the year. As I mentioned, I have a two-year-old, so he was starting daycare last year. That was part of the plan. So 2020 was going to be my year. I was back from having a kid. I was going to throw my all into work. And then COVID happened. Um, so I, I did manage to sign one client before COVID um, really got running. And then I did sign a second client uh, not that far into COVID because um, they were actually featured in a local paper for a, a COVID-related project that they had done. Um, and then I definitely signed another, might have even been another SFF Pit client last year. Oh, and I signed a horror client last year. So I, I did sign four clients in 2020, as bad as 2020 was, so. <laughs> wow, it's that, sooner or later, every conversation <laughs> leads back to the pandemic at least a little bit. So here is an, an unbelievably impossible question that I'm going to ask anyway, and esteemed audience will understand that you can't speak for publishing. You can only speak for your, your experience. But how do you see uh, the pandemic? And now hopefully, oh, fingers crossed, the post-pandemic. Um, how do you see that impacting publishing and how has that uh, impacted your business? Well, I mean, at the beginning of it, um, I was definitely not the only person who was in a panic because I wasn't sure what it was going to mean. Um, and I think uh, I think a lot of people were of the same mindset that I was. You know, my immediate thought was, oh my gosh, they're they're not going to acquire anything unless it's a known quantity, unless it's a known you know bestseller, it's somebody who's already established their career. Like they're not going to buy anything. Um, so fortunately, that was not the case. Also, fortunately. Um, bookstore numbers were really good last year. So um, I think it didn't take long for publishers to sort of go back to not business as usual, because obviously things have changed a lot, but um, at least in terms of acquiring projects and things like that. I do think there was a knee-jerk reaction right at the beginning. Everybody sort of like, nope, we're going to wait and see what happens. We're not going to commit to anything right now. Um, but I, I, I think that things turned out as well as they probably could have, um, just in terms of now we're definitely seeing sort of business as close to normal as it's probably going to get for a while. A lot of people are still working from home, but um, people are still having acquisitions, meetings, um, books are still being bought, big deals are still being, still being made, lots of regular deals are still being made. Lots of books are still coming out in the pipeline. Um, so yeah, I think I definitely thought <laughs> that's it. I'm going to have to find a new career. Publishing is dead. Um, and, and I, I didn't really think that, but I tend to be very worst case scenario. <laughs> um, 
And well, heck, I thought the whole country might be dead for a minute there. So that's <laughs> publishing. Right? right? We're, we're all living the stand now. Um, so yeah, things turned out a lot better than my worst case scenario scenario in my brain. And um, I, I, yeah, I think um, I'm optimistic about what's going on. I mean, there are other things going on, you know, certainly there's more condensing going on. The big five are now going to become the big four. Um, <laughs> but I think overall, what 2020 showed was that people are still reading a lot. Um, certainly enough for publishers to realize that there's still money to be made in this industry. And so at least for a little while, um, books are still being sold. So <laughs> I still have a job. <laughs> have rediscovered their love of reading from so many nights at home and that's going to continue and so many adaptations coming out and you know people running out to get the books that those are based on and yeah so hopefully it's going to be all all great news for for publishing going forward uh, are you back in the office now or are you working from home um i still mostly work from home we have a shared office but we we usually work from home anyway and i'm i'm outside of denver and our office is in south denver so i just kind of <laughs> we've our new norm is uh zoom meetings instead of you know getting together at the office and and so i, I think it'll probably stay that way um it makes things whole lot more convenient i can be at home working instead of on the road 45 minutes to south denver and back um and i was going to back up for a minute too and say again i am very worst case scenario so i tend to have a more optimistic view about things than i actually let on i was working in bookstores and then working in publishing whenever ebooks started coming out and everybody said like oh that's it print is dead you know and i i never felt that way so <laughs> Um, had you ever uh, wanted to be a writer? Do you still want to be a writer? Or as always, I want to help authors and I love books. I actually thought that I was going to end up working in marketing and publicity, to be totally honest. Um, the funny thing is when you first day of the Denver Publishing Institute, one of the first questions that they ask the classroom of I think there's like a hundred people is, you know, who in the room wants to be an editor? And you see at least three quarters of the rooms hands go up and I never, never raised my hand at wanting to be an editor. So it's actually pretty funny that my first job out of the Publishing Institute was as an editor and my second job was as an editor. Um, I never wanted to be an editor. I never wanted to be a writer. Um, my first day at work at the bookstore, my boss um, pointed above her head and said, and these are our advanced reader copies. And I said, oh, what are those? And she was like, oh, sometimes the publisher sends us free books that they want us to read and and we just put them up there and i was like how do we get more and she was like well i don't really know and so i i spent a very long time as a bookseller um building relationships with people who were in marketing already you know reaching out to them and saying i work in a bookstore and i got a copy of this arc um and i loved it and you know please send it send us more we would love to see more um it was really funny because again back to harlan coben um when tell no one came out i got an advanced reader copy of that and um by the time it came out in paperback 
so many members of the staff had read it and were hand selling it to people that our corporate office was actually like tracking our <laughs> paperback numbers but and and we kind of we played around a little bit with like picking like a store pick after that to like all read and hand sell but um when it came out in hardcover i hand sold a hardcover to a customer who went home and emailed Harlan Coben and said, you know, I had never heard of you and the bookseller recommended your book. And he was so excited. He wanted to know what bookstore it was and, you know, all that stuff. And I actually got to meet him at an event a couple of years later and he remembered who I was. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. But, you know, being a part of that as a bookseller, learning the industry, learning what imprints went with what houses, um, learning who worked in the marketing departments. I really came out of that wanting to have a direct hand in getting the books into readers' hands, which obviously I was doing as a bookseller, but I wanted to do it on a broader level. I wanted to be the one like getting it into booksellers' hands so that booksellers were then getting excited about it and telling customers about it. And um, that just sort of, I don't know, evolved into, like I said, I ended up working as an editor, which I never planned. And then realizing like I'm already doing the work of an agent and hey, as an agent, I also have a direct hand in getting the books into people's hands. So does that I mean, would it be fair to say that's one of the ma major motivations for you is you want to shape part of our literary conversation? You want to you want to be one of the one of the, the, the gatekeepers that says, yes, these books read these, right? Yeah, I wouldn't really call it so much as like a gatekeeper. Um, it's more that I want people to love the books that I love and I want to be able to um, have more of an influence on who reads those books, if that makes sense. Not in the sense that, you know, when people say gatekeeping, you think more of like, okay, well, I want to keep out these things and I want to, so it's not a situation where, um, we keep going back to horror, but actually I acquire all kinds of genres because I read all kinds of genres. But for example, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say like, oh, well, I don't want anybody to read this particular kind of book. I just want everybody to read horror. That's not it. But it is a case where like, if I really, really love this author's book, which as an agent, you do have to really, really love your client's books. I want everybody to discover this author and love them too, you know? Um, so, you know, back to sort of the querying, that's why I say too, I would love it if every author that queries me has a fantastic book. Um, I would, it would make my job a lot harder, but you know, I'm in it because I love reading and I'd love not necessarily having a hand in, um, shaping an author's career, but I certainly love being able to be part of that, being able to help with that. So. I've never wanted to write <laughs> myself. I leave that in the hands of the professionals. Um, I just like being able to really use my enthusiasm as a reader for more good, if that makes sense. Well, as a as a reader, how many? I mean, how much how much reading do you do? Would you say on a daily basis, weekly basis? And is any of it for fun now, or is it all just client submissions? No, no. I mean, so. Um, it's kind of funny because every once in a while I'll say like, oh, I'm reading this for fun. I do a lot of reading for fun, but that's all work as well, because I do have to stay informed, um, with, you know, what's in the marketplace, what's selling. Um, so everything I do 
even if it's reading for fun, is work. But when I say I'm reading for fun, it it is an opportunity for me to rest. <laughs> um, because I'm, when I'm reading for clients, when I'm reading for prospective clients, my brain sort of has to be on in professional mode the entire time because I have to be thinking like, is this um, is this working? If this is not working, do I have an idea of how to fix it? Um, I'm looking for continuity issues. I'm looking for, I, I, even if I'm looking at a prospective client's project, I have that editor brain in gear while I'm reading. Um, so when I say I'm reading for fun, I'm reading something that hopefully that has already been done with and I can sort of let my brain rest. I don't have to be in that editor professional mode. I can just be in pure enjoyment. And there is an element of enjoyment when I'm reading a client project. Um, you want that element of enjoyment when you're reading a prospective client's project because that's the indication that like, hey, this is working and I'm really liking this and this is somebody that I probably wanna make an offer to if the book continues this way. Um, but you know, you you it is work, and you do have to. There are times when I just can't work on a client project because I'm too exhausted. I know that any time that I spend on it, I'm probably going to have to redo the section that I just read because I'm not on 100%. You know, I'm going to miss something. I'm going to miss that something that we cut earlier in the manuscripts didn't get cut later on, and you know that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of reading for fun. That's my downtime. <laughs> um, but it all it all sort of goes into the pot in terms of like learning and staying on top of what's going on in the industry. Um, one of the ways that I use that, for example, so when you're querying, um, you want to use comps. People talk a lot about comps and authors stress out a lot about comps. And the first thing that they usually tell me if I ask them, you know, have you thought about comps and they're, they're and they have, but they don't have one, they'll say, well, I wasn't able to find anything exactly like my book. So when you're doing comps, um, and some agents may feel differently about this, but the way I feel about it, when an author is including comps, it is showing me that you know the industry. Um, if you're writing middle grade, for example, you've got some current appropriate middle grade um, comps <laughs> that you're comparing your book to. Um, and that tells me that you know the market. You're not saying like, this is where the red fern grows meets Harry Potter. Maybe it is, but I would say that most likely that's gonna be a little bit of a stretch if you're using those two examples. Um, but those two examples, as an example, would kind of tell me like, okay, or, or maybe raise some questions for me. Like, are you, are you reading middle grade right now? Do you know what's selling? Um, you know, uh, have you done your research? That sort of thing. Um, so when I'm looking at comps from an author, it's, it's less, less of what I do as an agent when I'm using comps and more for me to gauge whether or not you know your market, whether or not you've put thought into um, who's going to be reading your book, because that's really what you as an author should be doing when, you, when you're using comps. Who is the audience for your book? What book exists in the world 
that um, those readers are going to be clamoring to read your book. And so maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not even a book. Maybe it's Stranger Things meets, you know, another book or, or something like that. But it, it just um, is another one of those things that tells me more about your book, tells me more about you. When I use comps, I have to think very thoughtfully about the comps that I use because editors look at my comps to say, um, or to gauge whether or not they think a book is going to sell. So if I'm using uh, a comp, <laughs> if I'm using a book as a comp that didn't actually do very well on the market, that's probably a red flag against the book that I'm trying to pitch. Um, at the same time, if I use Harry Potter as a comp, <laughs> it's a very successful book. I'm... Very successful book, but <laughs> I would say any editor is going to look at that and say, really? really um so yeah when i use comps they need to be uh current they need to be books that sell and their ammunition um first of all for me to get a book into an editor's hands and they're hopefully they're appropriate because an editor can then use them in front of the editorial board and say you know this is last year's hot selling book in this genre plus you know this this hot selling book club book because you know whatever, this is going to be a horror novel that book clubs can read or something like that. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's an example of how my fun reading becomes work. Another thing too is um, when I'm pitching a project to editors, I want to see what those editors have been buying. So, you know, if I've been reading the latest Paul Tremblay book and I think that I've got a book that's going to appeal to those readers, then maybe Paul Tremblay's editor is one of the people I should be sending it out to. Um, and so staying up on what's selling and who's buying what and actually being knowledgeable about those books <laughs> all become things that I use in my day-to-day -day job when I'm working for my clients. So. so is there a rule of thumb we could throw out like uh, you want a comp that's in the last two years or? Yeah, I would say that. Um, you know, you want something that's current. You want something that's not super obscure. Um, and then I would also say temper your comps. If you really, really, really think your book is the next Harry Potter, go ahead and use Harry Potter as a comp. But I cannot tell you the number of times that, um, I think I used this this example in our um, chat at StokerCon. I was talking specifically about manuscript wish list, but I am constantly on the lookout for coming of age horror. I love coming of age horror. It is one of my favorite things. Um, I love that in the 80s and the 90s, coming of age horror for an adult reader was a thing. And now a lot of it is shoehorned into YA. So what I would really love to see is coming of age horror for adults. Um, so I, I put that out on manuscript wish list and I said in the vein of Summer of Night, Stranger Things, and It. And I literally had somebody respond to my manuscript wish list saying, well, I don't know any of the titles that you mentioned and my book isn't horror, but I really wanted to pitch you my book about a 40 year old man, you know, entering the dating scene. Um, so if you pitch me a book about a 40 year old man entering the dating scene and you tell me it's Hunger Games meets <laughs> Harry Potter, then, you know, something's wrong. Um, so I want them to be appropriate, but what they really should show me again is that, you know, you know, your audience, you know, the market, um, yeah, they should be fairly current 
and they should give me an indication of you know who's going to want to read your book if it's stranger things meets um Coraline you know then I want it to be stranger things meets Coraline you know what I mean so a tv show or a movie could also be a comp then or yeah or a video game um you know it could be like red dead redemption meets um I can't think of the there was like a werewolf uh, movie that was really popular last year but there's a new one coming out called werewolves within so maybe it's red dead redemption meets werewolves within and it's literally like a locked room western werewolf that would be perfect so yeah are you a gamer not so much. Uh, <laughs> I don't know where you find the time with the, with all the reading, and I know you're kind of a TV movie addict. I am. Um, I I have gotten very involved in um, individual games. You know, I played Fallout for a while. I loved Bioshock. Um, it was there was another there was another sci-fi horror game that I was really into. Lately, I've been Animal Crossing and. Um, Mario Kart and, <laughs> and Dr. Mario, to be totally honest. You've got a two-year-old now, so you've got to <laughs> you gotta you gotta be careful about what games you can play. I've got my games that are uh, for after my son. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, my husband has those. Um, but yeah, no, I usually I um when I was playing Fallout, for example, I would get so invested in Fallout that I would literally just play it for hours and hours and get nothing else done. So at this point, I kind of recognize that I do that and I don't really get super sucked into a video game if I know that I've got too much going on and I generally have too much going on with a two-year-old <laughs> um, on top of work. So yeah, I tend to like just unplug, watch TV and play Dr. Mario. <laughs> Very responsible. <laughs> so okay uh, let's talk a little bit about the bond literary agency because I'm, I'm assuming that at this point uh esteemed audience is completely sold on on becky lejeune they they, they want to talk to you they want to send you their it meets stranger things uh meets red dead redemption too that they they want that, that would be awesome actually uh well, let's, I'm going to edit that part out. I'm going to write that. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a funny one that I used to throw out a lot um, was Veronica Mars. I love mysteries, and I still would very much love to get like a Veronica Mars-esque um, YA mystery. I would also really love an adult private investigator series. I miss the hell out of the Kinsey Millhone series. I just, yeah, that one, that one has left a big hole in my reader heart. Um, so I would love an adult PI mystery, but I used to I used to use um, Veronica Mars as an example a lot, and I would I would actually I think I did a podcast or an event that was recorded as a podcast, and I said you know don't don't send me your non Veronica you know your non mystery <laughs> don't just try to get my attention with Veronica Mars um, I want it to actually be Veronica Mars, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll circle back to the Bond Literary Agency in a moment because that just reminded me talking about your love of books. Uh, something else I wanted to ask you about uh, is your blog, the No More Grumpy Bookseller. <laughs> yeah, the blog hasn't been getting quite as much attention as it used to. So, um, I, like I said, I did spend six years as a bookseller and I did um, once upon a time do some interviews for some jobs in New York. 
Um, and ultimately, I, I would actually get pretty far in the interview process. I had assignments as part of the interview process. And then a few of them, they were like, well, we're sorry, somebody in-house expressed interest in the position. And so we went with that person instead. And so I, I kind of thought at the time, like, oh, well, it's it's because my experience is just as a bookseller. And prior to working as a bookseller, when I was in high school, I worked as a waitress. So, I mean, my first jobs were country club waitress. Uh, then I worked at uh, the food court in the mall. And then I worked at a video store, <laughs> a video rental store. Uh, and a bookseller and i was like well okay so the problem is that i've only had service industry jobs so now i need an office job and so i um i left bookselling and i got an office job and i missed recommending books to people um so i, I did actually for a little while i reviewed for another um blogger's site and then um I felt like I wanted to inject a little bit more of myself into it. And so I started my own blog. I <laughs> I actually was going to start a blog while I was still in college and I couldn't get past all of the like <laughs> set the passwords and like, uh, you know, it has to have a numerical number, you know, it has to have a number and a capital number. And I, I just, yeah, I fought with that so much that I gave up starting a blog until, um, about like 2008 when I started No More Grumpy Bookseller. And then I almost didn't start that one because I couldn't figure out what the heck to name it. And <laughs> um, so yeah, that that came solely out of no longer being a bookseller and still really wanting to recommend the books that I loved to people. Um, so I do still do that and I do still um, try to write reviews of pretty much everything that I read, but um, I've been, for example, I've been in a bit of a reading funk lately, so I haven't read as much as I usually do. And um, yeah, it, it ebbs and flows and it coincides with work and being overwhelmed at work. <laughs> um, so, you know, one day I may have no time for the blog anymore, but for now, I'm still like, this is what I read as a reader and I keep it separate from if I do cover something that the agency represents, I do say like, this is my client or this is the agency's client or something, but yes. Having a popular book blog, if you're not occasionally going to rep your folks. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, um, I would say I don't know who reads my blog, <laughs> but I mean, to be totally honest, you know, it is my blog. I can do whatever I want with it, but I do want people to come away saying like, you know, the same sort of thing that happened when I was working in a bookstore, when I hand sold that person, Harlan Coben's hardcover book, you know, hand selling a hardcover is a lot harder than hand selling a paperback because it's more investment of money on your part as a reader. But we had people who would come into the store and talk specifically to, this was at Walden's, but they would come in and talk specifically to an individual bookseller like myself because I had recommended books that they really liked. And so that's what I hope people get out of the blog is a sense of trust in that, you know, I recommended such and such title and they loved it. And so now they're gonna come back to the blog and take my recommendation for more books. So I don't want anybody to ever feel like, well, she's just plugging her clients books. Obviously, if they're my clients, I love their books. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, you would love them as well. But I, yeah, I try to be upfront and sort of instead of like sneaking it in or anything like that. Four reps a year out of you've got 600 uh, queries sitting there right now. I mean, that 
yeah, <laughs> I'm assuming there are several books that, that you loved and it didn't work out where you're, you're not representing them. So the folks that are actually on your list, you've got to really love, I would think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there are, you know, there are some books that uh, I made offers to and didn't end up getting picked as the agent. There are there are some books that I did revise and resubmits on and never got a revision and they got agents and those books are out now too. And I'm like, oh man, like I, I knew, I knew there was promise there. Um, so yeah. Well, I'm just impressed because I saw that as of the, the date we're recording this, I assume as of the date this airs as well, there were current book reviews and I'm, Having run a book review blog, I know how much work that is, and I wasn't also agenting and 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 reading uh, submissions and, and and doing things within publishing as well. That's, I mean, the reviews aren't you know they're not epic length, but that's got to take 30, 40 minutes at least. They do, and I try to write my own uh, my own description of the book. I don't use the one that's on the cover of the book. And one of the reasons that I do that, I I always did that, but one of the reasons that I still do that is that I, I treat it like a warm-up. If I'm writing a pitch letter for a client, um, then writing the no stakes review, I mean, there are some stakes. I don't want to like post something and people be like, oh God, like her blog is garbage. Um, but you know, there's, there's not a lot of stakes in terms of writing my own description of the book. I'm writing, um, usually it's more of like a bookseller review as opposed to like a critical review. I mean, I, because that is my background, when I am posting something on the blog, I am keeping in mind sort of, there's an audience for just about every book and who would I hand sell this to? What would I tell somebody in the bookstore if I was recommending this book to them? So, it, you know, it's by no means, um, you know, analyzing, you know, <laughs> the, the hidden meaning of the book or, you know, they're not very deep reviews. They're literally like, you know, um, I, loved the character. I, I thought that the author, you know, kept me guessing until the end, or this is perfect for readers of this. But really, writing the description of the book is my warm-up, my practice for when I'm then going into writing a pitch where I'm writing a description of a client's book that is going to go in front of editors. Because um, that can be kind of hard. <laughs> That can be really hard, especially if you start to think about like what sort of rests on that. Um, as an author, you go through the query process trying to find an agent. And then essentially the agent goes through the query process trying to sell your book. Um, so, you know, there's a lot writing on that little description. That's why authors have so much trouble writing that little description. So the blog yeah. is my practice, my warm up. Well, I had a a writing instructor early on uh, tell me that one of the best things you could do is sit down and type out one of your favorite books. Uh, and I, I, I have several chapters of, of favorite books from way back when I haven't done it for a while. But it is a nice feeling like, okay, well, I might not be writing great sentences, but definitely great sentences can pass through my fingers into the keyboard. That That's clear. <laughs> so that's a little bit helpful. I don't just Yeah, there was a... There's something I there. I can't remember who it was now, but... There was an author that I read, couldn't tell you which one it was, um, recommended to people that if you're um, writing, you know, pick up your 
five favorite books, five of your favorite books, and read the first line. Like, how do those books start? And I, I try to convey that sometimes in advice to um, authors, too, because obviously when you're querying, you've got your query, you've got your first five pages, there's a lot of writing on those first five pages. Um, one thing that happens at a lot of conferences when we do these reads, um, we'll actually tell somebody, like, you shouldn't start your book here. Um, and I think that first line, getting that attention right out of the gate, um, I think that that piece of advice about reading first lines has always struck me as being incredibly helpful because, again, I'm not a writer. I have no aspirations to be a writer, but if I was going to write, that is one of the things that I would be doing. Like, what about this book works for me? And how can I translate that into my style and my writing? You know, what can I take from learning this? So it seems like, you know, typing out your favorite book, that would be another way of doing that. Another way of like sort of analyzing deeper anal analysis into like what works in that book for you as a reader. Why is that book your favorite? You know what I mean? Well, it's certainly a writerly activity that's not quite the terrifying act of writing. So <laughs> it does have that going forward. It's studying. I mean, it's studying. Let's uh, let's talk about the Bond Literary Agency because I always like to provide this opportunity for literary agents to, of all the wonderful agencies that exist in the world, why, what does the Bond Literary Agency have to offer? What can we look forward to experiencing when we sign with you? Um, so we're a small agency. We are located here in Colorado. Um, Sandra Bond started the agency. I, I should know this, but I don't. Um, not, not right off the top of my brain. I will, uh, somebody calls it buffering. Uh, anyway, so Sandra started the agency by herself, and then I joined the agency as an assistant at the end of 2014. We now have a third agent, Pat. And I think between the three of us, we cover most of the genre bases. Um, there's a little bit of overlap between what Sandra and I do. There's a little bit of overlap between what Pat and I do, but um, Sandra doesn't represent science fiction, for example. I love science fiction. Pat does science fiction. So um, we, um, at the at the moment, we have occasionally had interns, and as part of that interns learning process, we have had them read queries. But generally, we do not have assistants or interns or anybody like that working on any of our projects. All three of us work on our own clients' projects. Um, if you have a question, you're talking directly to us. Um, oh, I had a thought just now, and it just it just. Anyway, um, oh, oh, I remember what it was. So funny story. Um, one of Sandra's clients is a publishing attorney. This is one of the things you get from Bond Literary Agency, not a publishing attorney, but the story I'm about to tell. Um, she would do um, how to understand your contract um, talks at conferences. And I was lucky enough to sit in on one of her talks. Um, I love her. She's fantastic, this person. Um, so I sat in on one of her talks and she told the audience, she was like, look, I do this for a living. I do not vet my own contracts. She was like, my agent vets and negotiates my contracts. She was like, and my agent is more strict about my contracts than I would be. <laughs> so you get that working with Bond Literary Agency. Um, more strict on contracts than a publishing attorney. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's the attention. It's the, um, certainly because Pat and I are both associate agents, we're also drawing on and learning from Sandra's experience. Um, and so we have support there as well, which means, um, you know, if I'm going out with a project to an editor that I haven't worked with before, but Sandra has worked with, you know, I get to draw on that. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> we're small, but we're hyper-focused and we put a lot of care and attention into our clients and our clients work and yeah. So I'm going to get a whole lot more personal attention going with you guys than I would a major, a mega house in New York, I assume. Maybe. I mean, I, I can't say how every agency works. Um, I do know that hopefully whatever agency you end up working with, you have that experience. You know that if you have a question, your agent is going to take the time to answer it. You know that they're going to get back to you in a timely manner. You know that they're going to take all of your questions seriously. Um, you know, coming from my background working at a publishing company, one of the first things that I tell every single one of my clients is, you know, if you have any questions about your contract at all, ask me. I know everybody sort of has that feeling like, oh, this is just a dumb question. I, I, I'm just not even going to ask. I don't ever want my clients to do that. I don't care if you think it's a dumb question. I want you to understand your contract and I want you to be comfortable with this relationship. Um, so, you know, Again, hopefully whatever agency you work with, you have that confidence in the person that you're working with. Um, yeah. And I love that you guys aren't in New York. Uh, regular esteemed audience members know that I'm a huge advocate for decentralizing publishing. Uh, more and <laughs> increase our diversity that's going to increase of all kinds. That's going to get a lot more voices in that can afford to live elsewhere and like, hey, maybe a house instead of a studio apartment. How nice would that be? Yeah. Um, what are the advantages of being in Colorado versus New York and how are you still making sure that you're establishing personal relationships with with editors and folks that have no choice but to be in New York? Um, so oddly enough, like I said, I did not know this when I moved here, but I have learned since being here. There is a pretty strong hub of writing um, community here in Colorado. So there are a lot of really great um, writers groups. There's, um, I know I'm going to miss somebody, so I'm not, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not purposely leaving anybody out, but there's, um, there's lighthouse writers, there's Rocky Mountain fiction writers, there's Pikes Peak, there's Northern Colorado writers. There's, I mean, there's just so many great resources out here for writers to begin with. Um, we're not the only agency here. There are actually a few agencies here and there are some agents who work remote from some other agencies here. Um, so believe it or not, Colorado seems to be a little bit of a publishing hub. Um, and I don't know how much of that has to do with the Publishing Institute, um, but I do know, for example, one of the other big agencies here in town, two of their, at least two of the people there are former DPI alumni. So, um, you know, having gone to it and loved the program and recommending the program to people, maybe it is one of the reasons that we also have a pretty strong uh, community of independent bookstores, which is really nice. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, so there's a lot of support. There's a lot of things already going on here. There are also some publishers out here, which is really nice. 
Um, and, and we're seeing that spread happening already. There are already publishers, like you said, decentralizing from New York. There's source books in um, just outside of Chicago, I think it is. And there's um, all kinds of new presses popping up all over the place. Um, so by no means is the industry um, as central to New York as it was, say, like in the 80s. <laughs> Plus, with the internet and Zoom and everything else, it's a whole lot easier not to be in New York. Um, that said, you know, I did mention that I did go out to New York in January of last year, and I had the chance to meet with um, a number of editors, uh, most of them at Le Pan Quotidien, <laughs> of which there are numerous uh, locations in New York. But um, yeah, so and and I have in the past gone to Book Expo America and scheduled um, editor meetings around that. Um, and then on on top of that, it's paying attention to things like manuscript wish lists and editors who are actively putting out there what they're looking for, because in the same way that hopefully as an author, you've done your research and you're not pitching me your erotic romance or memoir, neither of which I represent. Um, I, as an agent, am not going out to editors, you know, with a horror novel who hate horror. So, <laughs> um, you know, so it, it is, um, I don't necessarily have the opportunity to go out for drinks with editors on the regular or have lunch with editors on the regular. Um, but I would say that 2020 has shown <laughs> that not a whole lot of people are able to do that anyway right now. And um, and there are ways to still get that interaction and still make sure that you are um, fostering those relationships with those editors without being right there in New York City and paying for their drinks. <laughs> <laughs> and conferences are nice too. Going into conferences, which hopefully we'll be doing in person again soon, are a great opportunity to meet editors and um, other people within the industry, even other agents, you know. StokerCon is going to be uh, in your backyard uh, next year. Yes. Uh, so hopefully we'll we'll get to chat again and actually in person this time. Yeah. Uh, and I'll buy coffee. It'll be a nice time. <laughs> um. Steve August knows that I, I make him a business on not in a new Becky Lejeune answer for all of publishing. <laughs> but I ask every everybody that's in publishing who comes on the show uh, about diversity in publishing, terrible track record uh, in the in the past. And and I always like to temper that with like, well, that's the American institution that has the terrible track record. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a pretty <laughs> widespread uh, yeah. issue. But we are seeing some efforts to uh, increase diversity in publishing. I want to see that continue. So I would always like to ask, what is the Bond Literary Agency doing to increase diversity in publishing? And what are you seeing uh, other folks uh, doing to increase diversity? Um, well, so one of the interesting things about this industry, and especially things being on the internet, is that you don't always know when someone is pitching you. <laughs> <laughs> unless they specifically say, you know, this is, uh, this is an LGBT project. I, I am, this is, I know they're moving away from using own voices, but you know, if, if they indicate that it is own voices, and by that, I do not mean, you know, like my book is about a Harvard grad, hashtag own voices. Um, so yeah, so 
Um, about our heterosexual white male own voices. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, that was uh, yeah. Um, publishing has to make up a lot of ground in this regard, and I feel very strongly about that. Um, one of the things that publish that we do in publishing, uh, and I, I've made this comment before, is that um, when a nonfiction project comes across our desk. The first question that somebody asks is, is this the best person to be telling this story? Um, I used just recently, I used it as an example, you know, if I decided I wanted to write a book about gardening, uh, they're going to come back and they're going to say, well, why are you the best person to be writing a book about gardening? And I'm going to say, well, you know, during COVID, I started my garden and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they're going to say, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to go with somebody <laughs> who's an expert on this subject. Um, and I think that we need to be treating, in some ways, fiction that way. Um, like I said, there's a course correction to be made. There are a lot of voices that have been ignored or passed over in lieu of white people. Um, so I think for me personally, that is one of the things that I'm looking at. Is this the best person to be telling this story? What is this person's authority on this subject? Um, if you have two projects, not even two projects, if you have, a, if I have a project come in about, you know, a, a gay black man growing up in Harlem, right? I want to know that that author knows what they're talking about. I want to know that that author is hopefully a gay black man who grew up in Harlem. If I find out this is some white dude who lives in Minnesota, I'm definitely not going to be asking to see more of that project. Um, so I think the responsible thing to do is to be thinking along those lines. Is this the best person to be telling this story? Um, I know there's a lot of pushback about like, well, it's fiction and you know, you, you're supposed to be able to write, you know, as a man, hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, if you're a good writer, you can write from a female perspective. That's fine. Um, and I'm not saying that the white guy in Minnesota can't write a book about a black gay man growing up in Harlem, but I am saying that's not the voice that we need right now. Um, and so hopefully what we will see is more and more thought going into um, acquiring those projects and making sure that we're not passing over those voices in lieu of, you know, the same old white guy. <laughs> um, the funny thing is, uh, so I just recently read um, The Other Black Girl, which is written by a black woman who worked in the publishing industry. And one of the funniest parts of the book for me, funny and sad, was a piece of the book that takes place at an editorial meeting. And I have heard horror stories um, that are exactly what she put in that book. And you should all read the book. It's fantastic. So I won't give away like what happens, but I will tell you that working in the industry, I know that those conversations happen and it's disappointing. It's disappointing to know that it's still going on in spite of the conversations that are going on in publishing and in spite of all of the talk about all the changes that need to be made. Um, and I am white <laughs> and I, I I definitely had a lot of privilege going into this industry. Um, I 
as an agent don't make any money until I sell a project. So that automatically eliminates a lot of people uh, who don't have the resources to invest their time and their effort into this job. Um, so I take my responsibility very seriously and I hope that uh, I am thoughtful enough in considering, again, whether this is the voice that we need, whether this is the best person to be telling this story, and um, let's go from there. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm trying to think this through in the best way possible that I can that I can um, state it, but I mean that's that's really all there is to it. it it's too many people have been passed over um, for no reason other than I don't want to necessarily say like blatantly the color of their skin, but it, it is true. I mean, too many people have been passed over. Too many people have not gotten the big advances. Too many people have not gotten the promotion that they deserved um, because it was all going to somebody who didn't need it as much. Like I said, there's a course correction. I'm trying to do as much as I can in terms of the projects that I take on and the authors that I seriously look at. And um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying you can't, like I said, you, you're not saying that a guy can't write from a female perspective. I'm just saying like, maybe there's somebody to be doing, maybe there is somebody better to be doing that right now. I think that's uh, well said. <laughs> well said except my example was the guy writing from a female perspective and that's not the best example but you know again like i said the guy from minnesota and the the guy from harlem like there's clearly somebody who is better to be telling that story and we need to be paying attention to that right now well hopefully the guy from minnesota was extremely responsible and went to harlem for a while and <laughs> With some folks that had that experience and had them weigh in and 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 help with the manuscript uh, and even then um maybe that's maybe still not the person to tell the story despite all that hard work yeah i mean and i think that's something to consider right now too as an author you know maybe you feel very strongly about a subject and, and maybe there's a reason behind that um i had an author pitch me a project where the main character of his book was asian american and the author himself was not. And he told me, he told me that in, in the course of his pitch, you know, he said, well, I do have to tell you this. And is that a problem? And I, I kind of hesitated. And he said, you know, it's not about the experience of being Asian American, but the character's based on my son. And son is Asian American. And I was like, you know, that's different. You know, that that is a father who wants to see their son to see them in a story. And he's not writing about an experience that is unique to somebody specifically of that heritage. It's just the character in the book. And he just wants his son to see himself in the book. That's totally fine. That's awesome. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you feel very strongly about, um, what's going on in Africa, um, but you've never been there and you've only read about it on the internet. And I actually have had people tell me, you know, like, well, I included this in my story and it's very clearly uh, 
a story unique to a specific cultural group that the author is not of. And then, you know, red flags start coming up, especially when I ask about the research that they've done, as you pointed out. Um, and the response is, well, you know, I just didn't go that deeply into it because I would have had to do more research. Like, that's a big problem. And that's going to be a note from me. <laughs> that's the wrong answer. But think about any subject. Come on, yes. ladies and writers. <laughs> you yes. have the person that writes the book do the research. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've had it happen a lot. And maybe, maybe the guy with the Asian American character, maybe had he not revealed that to me and I was reading his project, I might have gone back to him and asked, you know, why did you decide to do this? Um, and I've had that sort of response before too. I've had very clearly white authors tell me that they're writing from a perspective that's, you know, like a Mexican American or, a, you know, someone who's black. And I, I, when I ask them why, and they don't have a good response to that, that's a red flag for me as well. Um, on the other hand, you know, maybe it's not obvious, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a good example that would work. Again, the dad, you know, maybe it's not obvious, but then he, he has an explanation and he says why. And then that's perfectly valid. Um, well, even that scenario, and I, I know this from personal experience, I, that could still potentially be an obstacle to convincing a publisher to putting the money into them. It can, it can. Um, and there are some other agents who have spoken about um, things that have happened to their own authors that uh, I just, oh, uh, I have not had that happen to mine yet. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that or how to get around that. Um, you know, I would, I do always tell my clients to write the project that they're most passionate about, but I think it is very important right now to be mindful of what's going on in the industry and question your motivations um, if you do decide to go that route, if you do decide to write something that is so far beyond your own experience that, um, that I, as a professional, would question why you're the best person to tell that story. So. Watching our, our, our time is by. Enjoying <laughs> talking with you so much. I don't want to keep you too. late. I always want to be respectful of your time. And I know you, you're going to see a ghost tomorrow. So you need to be well rested for your sleepless night after you're, you're staying in the Stanley Hotel. Um, so I've got about two more questions for you. And then maybe we'll think about calling in the evening. Because uh, I always want to end while we're having fun. Um, but um uh, I, you and I talked a little bit about self-publishing at StokerCon, and you had some wonderful points that I wanted to make sure that I brought up on the show. Uh, one of the reasons I had ultimately decided to self-publish is because I wrote a book about a biracial uh, child, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, available now, esteemed audience. Uh, and the response I got back was, sir, you were not a biracial child. And that is that is well well spotted. That is true. But I am raising one. And I feel like, well, if I'm raising one, that I feel that that is a bigger uh, responsibility than writing a book about one. Um, so all that to say, if you're talking to somebody about self-publishing, I know that you were adamant that if a book has been self-published, it's done. Don't bother querying me about it. I can't do anything about it. It's published. If you're talking with somebody that's looking to be a hybrid author, uh, as I know many authors like to do, 
Um, and they're, you know, they're up front in that paragraph about them. Hey, here's a link to where my previous books are available. Maybe the sales are great. Maybe they're, maybe they're not so great. How much of a factor is that for you in deciding to go forward? And is there a fear that, hey, this is a person that might start self-publishing the book that I want to take out and, and, and sell to um, professionals? Uh, that is a, a, a thing that happens quite frequently. Um, so hopefully, if you're querying, um, you are courteous enough to let the authors that you have, or let, sorry, if you're an author who's querying, you're courtesy, cur, courteous, buffering, uh, courteous enough to let the agents that you're querying know uh, if you want to pull your project. So um, I have had it happen where I had a project that um, I was considering and I reach out to the author, you know, sometimes I acknowledge it can take me a while to get to it. And I, I acknowledge that. And I have on occasion reached out to an author and said, you know, I just want to know if you're still looking for an agent. Um, but yeah, there are times when authors have decidedly, you know, screw this, this is taking too long. I'm just going to self-publish the thing. <laughs> uh, and in fact, um, Sandra had one just recently that she really liked and she asked uh, Pat and I to take a look at it. And I started looking at it and I, for some reason I went to look up the author and I said, you know, Sandra, I think that the author self-published this book already. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he just got tired of waiting and he self-published. Um, so one of the conversations, and this tends to happen a little bit more at conferences, um, but one of the conversations that I will have with authors who are self-published and are now reaching out, querying me, pitching me, whatever, is, you know, what are you looking to get from this? Do you want to be a hybrid? Um, and, and I'll have a conversation. I'll say, you know, publishing is really slow. So I do want to make sure that you understand that it can take a year, a year and a half, even from the point that we have an offer for the book to even come out on bookshelves. And that's, you know, ignoring all the time that it takes for us to get the manuscript polished and ready to go, for me to pitch editors, for editors to actually read it. This is from the point of getting an offer. So we get an offer, it's probably gonna be at least a year and a half before your book hits bookshelves. Um, and I'll ask authors who have self-published, you know, clearly when you self-publish, you have complete control over everything. You are in control of um, when the book comes out, what the cover looks like, um, how it gets marketed. Um, some people like that, some people don't. Um, and you get all the money. So, you know, I, I once had a guy at a conference pitch me and he was telling me that he made six figures self-publishing his books. And I asked him, I said, so why are you pitching me? If you're making this much already self-publishing and clearly doing well, how okay are you gonna be with a publisher taking a cut and me taking a cut when it seems like you're accomplishing what you wanna accomplish? And um, that is something to consider as a self-published author. And a lot of times the author will tell me, well, I, I've done that. I'm ready for my books to reach more of an audience. And I understand um, you know, that it's going to take a while and I understand, you know, this, that, and the other, and this is what I want. And that's totally fine. But it is a conversation that I do feel like I have to have with self-published authors. Um, again, to reiterate, you know, like you're not going to have control over everything. You're, you know, everybody who has a hand in it gets a cut of the money. Um, 
<laughs> which I think is a big motivating factor for a lot of self-published authors. Um, but, you know, again, if you're in charge of all the marketing, I, so I worked with an author once upon a time who was handling all of their distribution, all of their marketing, and they actually said, you know, I'm just exhausted. I just can't do it anymore. Like, is that something that the publisher can do for me? I'm like, absolutely. So um, it just depends on what the individual author's goals are. Um, and then having a conversation about a realistic expectation of how things are going to go. Um, and I think that's fine. I have no problem working with authors who want to be hybrid. Um, like you said, just be upfront. Let me know that you have self-published in the past um, and pitch me a new project. Because yeah, once you've self-published a book, it is published. There are the, you know, Andy Weir situations that are going to happen, but more often the publisher is going to say, well, that book is already out. We want something new. Um, yeah, the Andy Weir situations are completely or wrapped with any unicorn. Wrapped with any unicorn. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's so rare. Um, but I can't tell you how many times an author will pitch me a book and say, you know, I self-published this and I didn't really do any marketing and I really wanted to get into the hands of more readers. And I just have to tell them, like, I'm sorry. Like, if you have a new book, feel free to query me with that. But there's just nothing I can do with that book that you've already published. Even <laughs> that would imagine uh, would factor into your decision a little bit like, oh, you published a book and you didn't do any marketing, but this time you're going to do marketing. This time you're, you're going to be on board. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ugh, marketing is its own thing. I mean, this is this is back to, you know, what we were talking about when it comes to um, cover design and stuff like that, you know, really some people can do all of those things. And some people can do those things well. You know, some people are fine carting around boxes of their books and selling them out of the trunk of their car and they're making as much money as they want doing that. And on the other hand, there are just as many authors, I think, who just want to write. And getting involved in, you know, selling their own books and setting up a booth at the farmer's market and all of that stuff, they would rather have somebody else handle that. Obviously, publishing has changed quite a bit. Um, authors are responsible for more of their marketing and promotion these days and social media and all of that stuff. Um, so it's not exactly hands off. It's, in fact, you you pretty much need to be involved. But, um, but I would say that for the authors who really want to be focused on the writing, um, you would probably be happier with a traditional route and having a team of people behind you doing things like putting together press releases and designing your cover and reaching out to bookstores and all that stuff. And then for those, like you said, magical unicorn people who can do all of those things that are comfortable doing all of those things, they're probably going to be more happy self-publishing because they have the know-how and the comfort level and they get to keep all the proceeds. <laughs> well, how about, and this will be the last hypothetical I throw out, but what if you've got somebody that wants to continue self-publishing their erotica memoir, which obviously is not going to not gonna work for you. <laughs> uh, they want you to do just their, their whore. Uh, and they're going to continue to do this on the side under under the same name. Uh, so uh, we'll all be that way. Does that present a challenge or a problem? Or is that something you can roll with? Um, it, it depends on the situation. So one of the reasons that people will use a pseudonym is when they recognize that the audience for this book is not going to be the audience for this book. Um, so, you know, if you're writing middle grade and erotica, 
then we probably need to have a conversation. Like you can continue to self-publish your erotica, but let's come up with a pseudonym for your middle grade because I'm not sure how a publisher would like, uh, you know, selling a middle grade novel <laughs> under the same name as your erotica. Um, so that would be a conversation. <laughs> that would be a conversation that I would have with the client. And, and again, that comes into that sort of realistic expectations. Um, you know, how is this thing going to go? Well, you know, you can continue doing the erotica, but the audience is going to be so vastly different here that we should think about a pseudonym. Um, at the same time, you know, I have a client who writes poetry. I know nothing about the poetry market, and a lot of times poetry doesn't need an agent. We don't have to use a pseudonym because it's not a situation where, you know, middle grade readers are going to come across something that's wholly inappropriate. Um, <laughs> and parents are going to go, oh my god. Uh, so, you know, that's not an issue. Um, and, and in that case, you know, that author can continue doing the poetry and we will work on all the commercial stuff together and it's not an issue. Um, yeah. There's not much that scares me away. I, I would say things that scare me away more would be um, somebody's behavior online or um, pushback. You know, uh, one of the things that I try to do initially, I don't do an offer phone call. I do sort of a getting to know you phone call. So I can ask you questions. You can ask me questions. I can tell you your th my thoughts. I can tell you your thoughts. I can tell you my thoughts on your manuscript. It's really impressive. All sold. <laughs> um, but, you know, I can tell you my thoughts on your manuscript and if I think there are problems that need to be addressed and you as the author can say like, you know what, lady, you're nuts. There's no way I want to work with you. Or you can say like, you know, that's exactly what I was thinking. And you're right. Um, these and these are sort of opportunities for us to get to know each other and see if we can work well with one another. Um, I, I want an author who knows how to stand up for themselves, but I definitely do not want an author who is basically like, you know what, my work is perfect and you don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> if you're going to give me those sorts of problems, then you're going to give an editor those sorts of problems. And um, that's it's just not going to work all around. Um, so that sort of thing would scare me off. Not so much like, well, I'm doing this weird thing on my own. And I admit that it's weird and I want to keep doing the weird thing. But I also want to do some commercial stuff, too, that that is going to get into the hands of more readers. And I'm going to say, you know what, that's fine. Let's do it. Thank you, Lejeune. This has been absolutely fantastic. I just thought <laughs> it was a blockbuster episode that I think esteemed audience is going to be listening to and taking notes. Um, so thank you for, for being incredibly generous with your time. Uh, I've got my, my final question is always some variation. Uh, if for all the authors listening, if there was one or two or however many like, however many bits of advice that you wish they would take to heart that you think would make a difference in their career, what would you tell them? Oh, um, well, the biggest one, because I never want to be, I never want somebody to walk away from an experience with me saying like, oh God, I'm never going to write again. I'm just, I'm terrible and I'm never going to write again. Um, this is a business um, and writing is a craft. So if you get rejections from anybody, um, 
take into consideration the feedback that you're getting, take into consideration what is going on. You know, if you're if you're a querying author and nobody is asking to see your manuscript, maybe revisit your query and see if there's something going on there that's not doing your book justice. If people are asking to see your full manuscript, but nobody's making any offers, see what sort of feedback they're giving you. Um, you know, you may feel like this person's feedback is garbage and you may feel like this person's feedback is like me and then you may get feedback from you know five other agents or editors that you're like well you know i was resistant to this but multiple people are saying it so maybe i need to look at it um so i think certainly um be proud of your work stand your ground um stay true to what your vision of the work is but you're not going to do yourself any favors if um, you get dejected and angry with rejections. Um, so yeah, don't let the rejections get you down. Hopefully take what you can from them and learn from them and keep honing your craft. Um, one of the other pieces of advice I would have along those same lines would be to listen to other authors stories. There are definitely those like one in a million, like I wrote my first book, I sent it out to this top agent and then they sent it out and we went to auction. Like those things happen, but more often than not, you have situations like there's a Colorado author here named Carter Wilson who has talked about the fact that his agent wasn't able to sell him until like his fourth book. Um, there are other people talking about like how many rejection letters they got before they got an offer from an agent. Um, so, you know, pay attention to those stories because those are more common than the million dollar advances, you know, on your very first book that went to auction right away. <laughs> yeah, but that's not fun to fantasize about when you're in the shower. Like, oh man, when I finish this book, I bet it's going to take eight years to sell after I sell a couple of others. <laughs> <laughs> it's Nobody true, it's true, it's true. But, you know, I think um, if you're really passionate about being a writer, just like with any other career, you know, you um, take the feedback that you can get and, and keep learning from it. That's the perfect note to end on. <laughs> Where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media, all that good stuff? Uh, so I am on Twitter. I so so you can find me under Becky Lejeune. It's either going to be Lejeune Becky or Becky Lejeune. But I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Um, the Bond Literary Agency. We have our website bondliteraryagency.com. I'm on Query Manager Becky Lejeune. Um, yeah, I'm all over the place. And Twitter is at Becky Lejeune. I happen to have it up. <laughs> so then Instagram is Lejeune Becky. Yeah. Ah, and then of course, don't forget to uh, check out uh, your blog, which I'll link to in the in the show notes, and read some of your reviews and descriptions that you've written there as well. The uh, No More Grumpy Bookseller. Ah, and esteemed audience, as always, head to middlegradedenture.com for thousands of interviews with literary agents, editors, authors, all the best people. Um, download your free copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1. We're talking horror. Download that and then pay cash money for Chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. Uh, it'll be worth your time, I promise. 
And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.